today on Backroom Politics. Hillary Clinton 3.0. How has the resurgence of Camp Hillary got the GOP to pay attention? I mean, really pay attention. The successful sequester. Did sequestration work too well? The rhetoric seems to be getting worse, and they're talking about impeachment and eating their own. And we're going to talk about the POTUS's pre-vacation statement on NSA. Security versus civil liberties. That and tell me a story today on Backroom Politics. Live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., this is Backroom Politics. To join the discussion, you can call toll-free 1-877-662-3713. And now, the moderator of Backroom Politics, Justin Russell. out there in Radio Land. It is Tuesday, which means it's time for the best political talk show you've never heard of. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Joining me as they do every Tuesday, he is the former eight-term member of Congress representing Washington's 2nd Congressional District. He is the Honorable Congressman Al Swift. Hi, Congressman. How are you? And let me point out, as you can begin, that you are worse than Marlena Dietrich in terms of milking an introduction. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Wait and wait and wait. And finally, when they're just about to stop applauding, you make your entrance. Of course, of course, of course. To, To his left. Are you done? To his left, yeah. he is the former, he's the former uh, floor chief for, and then Congressman Gerald R. Ford. He is the former vice president of government affairs for the National Broadcasting Corporation. He is the Honorable Bob Hines. Hi, Bob. Hi, Justin. Good Any other later. obscure celebrity references you want to make right now? I'm Fulton Lewis Jr. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. We did that last week, Al. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Uh, and joining me at the 12 o'clock position today, she is the former general counsel for the Homeland Security Committee under Benny Thompson, former Obama appointee as general counsel to the Maritime Administration. She's the Honorable Denise Krepp. Hello, Denise. Hello, Justin. Uh, and to my right, he is the former longtime Senate staffer, former Undersecretary of Commerce, who's worked at last count under four presidents. He is longtime Washington Center and a very handsome fellow from the Stimson Center. He is the Honorable Alan Moore. Hello, Alan. Hello, Justin. I, I do think that in, in fairness to Al and in fairness, fair, in fairness to you, it's not fair to call you Marlene. I think it would be Marlene. Marlon, 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 great, thanks. I'm so glad. And of course, I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. We have a good show today. Uh, lots of stuff to talk about. We're going to start off this week talking about the resurgence of Hillary Clinton. Hillary Clinton. Every time you think that she might be dead in the water politically, every time you think that there might be another snag in her political career, Hillary Clinton comes out smelling like a bed of roses. It is Hillary Clinton 3.0. 
Hillary Clinton now, after she's left the Senate, after she's left being the First Lady, after she's left most recently being Secretary of State, continues to gain not only political popularity, but political, just political power inside the Beltway, across the nation, and globally worldwide. It is an amazing, it's just an amazing renaissance that she keeps and keeps doing. So, when we talk about Hillary 3.0, Denise, I'm going to start with you. When, with everything that's happened with Hillary Clinton, her turmoils as first lady dealing with a president that had a Lewinsky issue. You had her as a U.S. senator, and she was known as a carpetbagger. We, we look at her as Secretary of State Benghazi. Now she's still, if not as popular, more popular than ever. How does she continue to keep this massive political machine going? Well, Justin, you, you kind of. I mean, the way in which you've described Hillary is very interesting because it's sort of all the negative things that people associate with her. What you didn't bring up is the fact that she was known as somebody who could reach across the aisle when she was on the Senate, that she knew what she was talking about as the First Lady, that she was able to talk about health care even when she was First Lady, and what she's doing right now is she's talking about empowering women. I, I mean, I, I can't think of anybody in my lifetime who I would like to see as president because, one, I know she's qualified, and, two, I think she knows how to get the people around her that would be able to do the job that she needs to get done in 2016. Well, we'll talk about that her presidential aspirations in a second, but Congressman now, uh, you were in Congress during her term as First Lady. Uh, you've been around Washington long enough to see her in, in her role as both senator and as secretary of state. Is, is she really the politically savvy of the two when we look at Bill Clinton and Hillary Clinton put together? Well, when you put them together, you're talking about a monumental amount of political talent. Uh, who's better than the other, I don't know. She certainly, however, it is a good politician in her own right. Add Bill to it, makes her stronger. But uh, she's uh, she could run on her own, I think. Bob Hines, this is obviously something that the that the Republican Party is looking at, saying, "Wait a minute, you know, we we've got some good contenders on the GOP side that are looking to reclaim the White House for the Republicans, but they still have to get over this one hurdle, Hillary Clinton. Is it doable?" Good question. I think it's way too early to know. Uh, I think it's likely. I can't see any other possible. Democratic uh, individual, Democratic senator, governor. I don't see anyone else, with the possible exception of the vice president, Mr. Biden, and I suspect that he'll be taking polls uh, late this year and next year, and he'll and he'll realize that it's not even close. And uh, I think she's going to walk into the nomination. But but with respect to the Republicans, it's so darn early to tell. I have no idea who's going to become the nominee, and quite frankly. The first thing they're going to have to do is find a way to uh, to take Hillary on, and she's very, very effective. And Bill Clinton has uh, survived uh, things that uh, many of us would have wondered how he ever did it, and uh, and he's a very popular guy right now too. So it's a it's a very, very strong uh, Clinton juggernaut if they wish to unleash it. But Alan Moore, you know, we 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 look at folks. You know that have also been named as possible Democratic presidential nominees. Uh, you know, one keeps coming up is Joaquin Castro. 
uh, Joaquin Castro, the mayor of San Antonio, had a great showing at the Democratic Convention. His name keeps popping up as a possible contender in 2016, as well as a handful of others, including the vice president. But the focus still goes back to Hillary Clinton. You would think that with whether she's that successful or she's got a great amount of Teflon attached to her, that it's still too early for Hillary Clinton to be known as the anointed one for the Dems. Well, I do agree with that, but I also agree with what Denise said earlier. You picked out a couple of things about Hillary as though they characterized her. She's been on the rise for, for years. She's been on the rise since she went to the Senate. She, New York has a history of carpetbaggers. That's not an issue. It was never a big problem for her. She got elected, and she did a very creditable job as a senator from New York, um, if she fell down somewhere, it was putting the wrong group of people together to for her campaign against the the surprising upstart uh, Barack, uh, Obama. Barack Obama. But you know, no one really saw that coming, and uh, it, it, so it's not assured at all that she can get the right team together. She that she gets the nomination, that she even wants the nomination. The thing that's so amazing about this: we're seven months into Obama's second term, and we're sitting here talking about. The, the presidential race years away. I don't. I'm not as nearly as convinced as the rest of you guys that she's a a a shoo-in to be the nominee. It, a lot of things happen in life over a period of a couple of years to people's uh, health and their priorities. And and as uh, as, as Anthony Weiner has shown to uh, to their secrets. Um, well, I don't. I don't think Hillary Clinton's doing selfies on Twitter. I don't think she is either. But I'll bet she's got some secrets. Um, and and uh, we just don't know. But we also don't know how much she really has the passion for it, um, in, it at, at this point in her life. But she wasn't she wasn't dead and reviving. She left uh, the, the the Department of State with this lingering set of questions about Benghazi. But beyond that, a pretty good record. Not not the great record that some people want to to to, to grant to her, but a very creditable uh, record. And now. She's joining the Family Foundation. She will have a platform to pursue some of the issues that, that Denise referred to, particularly educating and empowering women. But, you know, we got a long way to go here. This, uh, the, you, and you talk, you talk about Castro. That's an interesting, you know, a mayor being a presidential candidate. That's almost like talking about a state senator from a Midwestern state. Who like might, Illinois. Who might show up and join the Senate and then suddenly be a candidate. Um, I, I don't really think it's going to be uh, candidate Castro, but but I would have bet against Obama too. Yeah, same, so good point. We'll see. Good point. Uh, you know when we when we look at uh, when we look at everything going on with Hillary Clinton, uh, Congressman now, you look at the true international impact that the Clinton Global Initiative has. The initiative started by her husband, former President Bill Clinton. And she seems to have integrated well into the global initiative as a front person for that. It almost seems like there's almost a, a, a rainmaker aspect to what she's doing. Could she be a rainmaker and be effective in her role as the queen of the Democratic Party going forward? Of course she could. Will she? Well, we don't know. One of the things that I, I think that we've said around the table that should really be emphasized is it's way too early. This is this is in bad taste, but I, I, I've always maintained you've got to watch out for the Chappaquiddick Bridge. 
accident. Interesting point. Interesting. There, Odd there, reference, but an interesting point. There are things that can occur that can that can turn a campaign off or on or change the dynamics of the whole thing. So <clears throat> I think this is interesting bar talk at this point, but I don't think it bears much relationship to what, in fact, we will be facing uh, when the election gets nearer. But, Denise, when we saw Hillary Clinton at the end of her term as Secretary of State, uh, she had her little she had her little accident at the House, which gave her a concussion. A lot of people said, you know, maybe she'd be better suited not so much as, you know, the Chief of State, but more so as the political rainmaker, as the one who anoints those. And it almost seems like her enthusiasm for public service is waned just a little bit, but every time we see it, she's back on the forefront. Just, it's not waning, and I think we've all been in positions of power in this town where when you're in the thick of things, it's very tiring. I mean, you, you get a lot of energy from the power, but the power can also be very draining emotionally and physically, and you need to take time off, and that's essentially what she's done for the past couple of months, is take time off and say, okay, let me wake up like a normal person, let me read the paper, let me figure out what I want to do in life. Does that mean that you're waning? No, that means that you're recuperating from the stress in which you put yourself in and building towards something else. Bob Hines. And, and she's in a u unique position in this sense. If, in fact, uh, a year or a year and a half from now, when you know, the campaign began, people began looking for candidates, uh, she can be well rested and ready to go if she wants to do it. I mean, I don't know that she wants to do it. I do know this. I, I, I believe that if she were to say a year and a half from today, you know, I'm running for president and nominate the Democratic Party, I suspect that if they were doing polls three days later, she'd get more votes than everybody else. Well, I mean, but again, has she really gone into a recuperating from public life aspect in her current role now, even inside or outside the Clinton she, Global Initiative? She is, she is recharging her batteries, but she certainly didn't disappear. She disappeared from our view, but she's been out giving speeches at $200,000 a pop to, to trade associations and groups all over the country, crowds of five to $10,000, uh, five to 10,000 people, um, and uh, interacting with people, working on messages, thinking about what to do. She is joining what was once the William Jefferson Clinton Foundation and has now become the Clinton Foundation. It's got not, it's it's not that connected to the Clinton Global Initiative, more on that in a second, but it's a foundation that had that got a lot of money from Bill Gates to get to get started and a lot of money lesser amounts from individuals from a lot of the wealthy people that Bill Clinton has known over the years who want to find something useful and worthy to do with their money as well as some foreigners and foreign governments so he's got 350 people at the Clinton Foundation doing real work in global health and childhood obesity his daughter is now part of this and she is carving out a role for herself and 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 Mrs. Clinton, Secretary Clinton, Senator Clinton is uh, is now joining it, where she can carve out an area in the foundation to work on on women and girls education and empowerment. The Clinton Global Initiative is a once a year enterprise. Gather a bunch of people, charge them twenty grand apiece, sit around and hobnob during while the UN is in in session, 
and then make sure that people sign up to make certain kinds of promises. Really a fascinating, interesting one-week enterprise. So uh, lots of uh, uh, it's important to know the difference between the, the, the foundation, foundation and which the they want to live on forever, and then this the so-called CGI Clinton Gold Initiative. Denise Crump. Just one of the issues that I'm curious about, uh, what Hillary's going to talk about, is the sexual assault um, problem that's going on in the military. Bill Clinton didn't have the best of relationships with the military when he came in. I mean, the, the decision to say don't ask, don't tell pretty much obliterated his relationships with the senior brass. So that being said, we're now many years from that. Will Hillary come out and take a strong stance on what Senator Gillibrand and Representative Spears are doing in the House and the Senate with regards to the sexual assault, um, sexual harassment issue and taking away the ability for commanding officers to make decisions? That's a very politically dicey issue, but it's something that I would hope that she would take on and recognize that it is important for her to do that and that it is different from what her husband did 20 years ago. But, you know, when, when we look back at the Clinton legacy, you know, Hillary Clinton's legacy, and we look at her back in the, 20, uh, the, the 2008 elections where she was, again, the ordained one, lost to this up-and-comer Barack Obama, who ultimately won a second term as president. Congressman Al, if she could not pull off, especially at coming off of a very horrible uh, popularity rating of the Republican White House, if she couldn't pull it off in something that could have basically given the Democrats the White House on a silver platter, what's going to make it possible for her to win this time? What's different? Mostly that she didn't win the last time. <clears throat> she uh, doesn't have to worry about all of the things that have happened and the various issues that uh, the President uh, Obama is facing. Uh, and she got the opportunity, uh, thanks to President Obama, to uh, show what she was capable of doing when she was Secretary of State. And uh, whether you agree with all of her policies or not, I think uh, you generally get general agreement that she was a very effective uh, Secretary of State. So I think uh, she's much better off, frankly, for having lost the primary to Obama. But Bob Hines, you agree? Yeah, I do. I agree. Now, you know, she may have lost uh, to Mr. Obama, but that was a one-off situation. This was the, this was a very attractive man who wasn't well-known, didn't have a lot of baggage at all, who was very popular because of who he was and his background and who he is. And it was something that an awful lot of people gravitated to because this was such a big step toward a, an important racial relationships that our country has and trying to trying to smooth out the problems we've had with our racial relationships and having a chance to vote for a black man who was gifted and talented and still is. And it, the reality was she was up against a very, an unusually difficult situation and she handled herself well. She didn't pout afterwards. She's a good player, and I think she's going to be very tough. Congressman Al? And another thing we should remember is she wasn't very popular with an enormous number of people when she was running in that primary. I personally came out fairly early for Obama for the simple reason, because I had nothing against Hillary, 
But I really questioned whether or not she could win the general election, given the almost hatred that uh, some people had for her. That's all gone. Alan Moore, I, I am so interested that that my two colleagues think that she was better off for having lost to Obama. Um, I'm guessing she doesn't feel that way. Um, I do think that the experience in the intervening years has been good for her. She's better. She is better qualified to be president going forward. That that she doesn't have probably the same depth of hatred that that I think she once had. But I'm guessing she'll never be president. So it's hard to say. Boy, she's better off because she lost. Uh, and uh, you know, it's hard to become president. And had she prevailed back then, and I think that it was doable for her, but for some uh, mistakes in the way she was operating, she would have been president, and she would have been reelected because the Republicans have shown they're perfectly capable of completely screwing this stuff up, and and may well do that again uh, in 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 2016. But the problem for the, a Democrat in 2016 is. They're going to have to deal with the after effects of an Obama presidency and a host of problems that I think we can anticipate will will present. That doesn't mean that the Republicans will pull it together and take advantage of that opportunity, but it's going to be a harder lift for a Democrat next time out than it was for uh, for a, a Democrat the last time. Can you say I disagree with that, and I disagree with it because of immigration. As long as Republicans take the stance of taking on immigration, which means don't let those Mexicans come in, you are going to lose the Hispanic vote. I mean, if, if you truly want to win 2016, that means you have to take a more progressive stance towards immigration and realize that just because people don't look like you doesn't mean they don't belong yeah, but in the United States. But you're, 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 talking, you're talking about somebody who, you know, who was associated with an administration, Bill Clinton, tremendously successful with minorities in, immigrant, in the immigrant community. Uh, she has been very open to the discussion of immigration reform with the minority community and, and, and those outside the U.S. What What's different from her stance now that's going to take her into 2016? The Republicans in the House of Representatives and the fiasco that they created regarding immigration reform. I mean, as, as long as they keep yapping and biting themselves in the butt, they're going to ensure that the Democrats not only take 2016, but will be good way into 2014. Bob Hines? Think about it this way. If you take the, the, uh, the African-American, the black community, and you take the Hispanic community, you probably have 35% of the voters. Now, if you have 90% of 35 of the voters committed against you absolutely bar nothing, you're not going to win, even with Abraham Lincoln. We ain't coming back. I don't know where Alan Moore. I, I don't know where on that side anyway. <laughs> I'm intrigued with this 90% notion. I mean, I, I'm a big believer in immigration reform. I like the Senate bill. I'm not nearly as pessimistic as others seem to be about how this will play out, because I think there's a reasonable chance that we will have some, uh, some significant immigration uh, legislation, uh, including uh, a pathway, long as it may be, to citizenship for at least some folks. So. So I have not given up on that, but but I've also been interested in some of the analysis that says 
that that uh, you know you're, you're you're giving away ninety percent of a third. I, I don't think you're giving away ninety percent. Romney got almost thirty percent of the Hispanic vote, <laughs> and he wasn't exactly a tower of strength uh, on this stuff. And and whoever is going to be a candidate uh, the next time is not going to get the same kind of African American turnout. They may get the same percent, but I do not expect them to get the same kind of turnout. I hope we get some immigration reform, but I don't think the next election, uh, either the congressional elections of 2014 or the presidential, are going to hinge solely on that issue. Well, you know, one of the things we haven't talked about is Hillary Clinton's association with some less than popular or less than stellar political entities, particularly this cycle coming up. Obviously, uh, Anthony Weiner's wife, Homa, was very very key figure inside her State Department administration. Uh, she's very close to Terry McAuliffe, Terry McAuliffe having his own legal problems. Bob Hines, is this, is this the type of uh, sniff test that's going to attach to Hillary Clinton, or can Hillary Clinton get above that? Well, number one, it's very early. Who knows what's going to be going on a year and a half. Later. Is Hillary Clinton banking on the short attention span of the electorate? I think most politicians do. Obviously, <laughs> Anthony, you know, Carl Pager is doing it. Yeah. <laughs> well, but, but, Alan you know, Moore. Just look at it this way. I mean, it's a long time. It, we're way, we're not even into the, the, the bio, you know, the congressional election a year and a half away. We've only got seven months or so into the, into the uh, presidential, the second term. There's, we're so early. It's hard to tell what is going to be important to the voters, you know, for three years from now. Right now, uh, it's 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 a great party game to talk about it and, and wonder whether she's going to be up or down or who's going to be the opponent or what she's going to do. But the fact of the matter is, right now, if it sits right now, I suspect that if you were to put up five or six Democrats. Uh, you know, on a list and say, let's have a national poll. Which one would you like to see the nominee? I bet that the, the former first lady would probably get more votes than everybody else combined. Alan Moore, you have a comment. Well, I don't think that her association with, with Huma Abedin, um, Wiener's wife, has got any particular negative for her years from now. Anthony Weiner will be doing God knows what. My guess is the couple will have split up, and people will feel badly for her. And she's an accomplished woman uh, who who married badly um, and uh, is trying to make the best of it. I don't see a downside there. I don't see a, down, a significant downside to Terry McAuliffe if he's governor, if he's not governor. He's a s sleazy guy, but she's, he's not her closest friend. He's a family friend. Her biggest risk is the something that unforese unforeseen, as Al referred to, some secret that should come out, but I doubt if that will happen because there's been so much scrutiny to her, or something that, you know, that her husband does. And uh, yeah, he's a smart enough guy, and he's become a vegan, and he's paying attention to himself. He's not into, he's got, worrying about his health, worrying about his future, wants to live to be a grandfather. I'm doubting that he's going to make some idiotic mistake. But he's certainly made some in the past, and right. that would harm her significantly. I mean, you know, going off of that point, Denise Krep, you know, we didn't hear anything about Whitewater uh, in the in, in the 2008 presidential election. Something that was a key, she was a key figure in, 
during the Clinton years and his running for president. Uh, stuff like this does, you know, America has a short attention span. That plays well for Hillary Clinton. She's got the ability to brush that off. Does that make her successful? Well, it, it not only makes you successful, but you also have to realize that the most of the folks that are going to be voting in 2016 don't even remember what Whitewater was. Not only do they not remember it, some of them weren't around for it. We're getting a little older, and with the younger generation, they're not going to care. They're going to be more focused on making sure that they have jobs. And if she can say that I can produce jobs and you have a high unemployment rate in certain parts of the country, that's what they're going to be focusing on. Uh, Congressman Al? I'm, I'm just wondering what the, the late Carl Tubin, uh, who uh, used to uh, be chairman of uh, the Democratic Party in Maryland, wonder if, if he were here. Uh, would he have anything to say about this discussion? I'm, I'm sure he would, but you know what? You know, unfortunately, when you go in the penalty box for being late, you don't get that opportunity. That's moderator privilege. So we're going to take that as the last word. Uh, real quickly, around the table, uh, does Hillary set out 2016? Congressman now. Does she, does, she, does she run in 2016? Yes. Bob? Yes. Yeah. Denise? No. I agree with Alan. I think no. I think she's had her, I think she'd rather be the rainmaker, the kingmaker, rather than run for president. She's too old for this crap. Hey, uh, when we come back, uh, we're going to talk about uh, something that's come up here in the in the past uh, 24 to 48 hours. We're going to talk about New York City's stop and frisk policy, which a court has ruled as unconstitutional, and the city is vowing to appeal that decision. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. We'll be back in two minutes. Stay with us. Wow, a little wow. bit of Fats Waller, Lulu back in town. And I, I tell you, when I am back in town or when any of my friends are back in town or, heck, when we're living here in town, we usually find ourselves down at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., right across from the National Press Club. Why do we come here? Well, they've got the city's best cigar menu, the most diversified with some of the best-known brands and some that you might even know, but you might want to give it a try. Everything from Arturo Fuentes down to Zeno. You can go all the way from your $9 little petite girly flavored cigars all the way up to the Opus X Lost City. They have a cigar for everybody. Mild, medium, strong, heavy. However you want to smoke it, it's available here at Shelly's Back Room. Come in, have Bob, Na, or any one of the girls show you what the right cigar might be for your taste that evening. Again, Shelly's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. As Bob likes to put it, it is definitely the place to be. You can tell the mailman not to call I ain't coming home until the fall And again I might not get back home at all Lulu's back in town yeah.
friends, uh, but it doesn't take me to get around, no. Tell the mailman not to call. He's coming home until the fall. And then again, I might not get home at all. Soon back in town. Oh, that woman's back up town. Oh, my, 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 my. And we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Back Room Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. You can join the discussion by calling 877-662-3713. Again, the number is 877-662-3713. The telephone lines are open if you want to join the discussion. Joining us now, out of the penalty box, is the former Democratic Executive Director for the party in the great state of Maryland. He is longtime Washington Insider, Carl Tuvin. Thanks for joining us, Carl. You know, we start at 4 o'clock. Yes, sir. Uh, yeah, waiting on a parking spot. Hey, let's uh, talk about a developing story that's coming out of New York City right now. Uh, the, uh, the New York City Police Department had instituted uh, a few years ago uh, a policy called stop and frisk, basically giving the authority to police officers to, in the line of their patrols, they can stop an individual, frisk that individual without quote-unquote probable cause. The probable cause barrier that they could use, you could drive a semi-truck through. A court in the past 24 hours has ruled that stop and frisk is in fact unconstitutional. It is deemed racial profiling, that in fact the officers need some sort of probable cause to quote-unquote stop and frisk an individual. It has now been announced that Mayor uh, Michael Bloomberg, Mayor of the City of New York, uh, and the City Council is backing him, that they are going to appeal this court's ruling. Let's go back and look at stop and frisk. Uh, Many in the minority communities, which are pretty dominant in New York City, claim that it is, in fact, racial profiling and convince the court of the same. Uh, but, Bob Hines, when you look at uh, New York City, which has historically had a crime problem, under stop and frisk, there are some that argue that crime has dropped, particularly major crimes, uh, robberies, assaults, murders. Do they coincide necessarily, or is this, in fact, just racial profiling? Well, with respect to the, uh, the reduction of crime in New York, uh, to, be, to, be, to be factual about it, what that, when that started to happen was when Mr. Giuliani was the mayor, and he had his police force saying, we're going, we're going to fix windows. We're not going to have all this kind of buildings letting, letting going, you know, just falling apart, people not being safe. He did a very good thing, and, the, and I think it was, wasn't Mr. Batten, the, the um, chief of police or something, but they had a really good operation, which has generally followed through uh, even in today. Now, with three, so a lot of this lower, lower uh, criminal activity, if, we, if it is so in New York, has, has been something that has been, for over a decade, has been an improvement in the, in the ethos of the city. Now, looking about frisk and whatnot, I, you know, stop and frisk, I, uh, I have some concerns about it, personally, just as a lawyer. Uh, it's pretty hard for me to, dis- to figure out what kind of a criteria an officer would have to have that is objective, that would tell the officer that there's something going on across the street and I ought to go over and take a look at it. 
it is true that New York has a large non-white population. And it is probably true that uh, more non-whites are being frisked and stopped than are not being frisked, than are not being frisked and stopped. That may not, that may look like racial profiling, but it may be, re, it may, there may be reasons for it that, uh, you know, it's clear that people who don't have jobs, people who haven't got educations, people who don't, uh, you know, really have anything to do but hang out are probably more likely to be stopped and frisked than people who are coming out of an office building or something of that nature. I, I mean, again, I'm just not comfortable with the whole idea of stop and frisk. Congressman now. I think that stop and frisk, taken for the way it was presented, probably is okay. The problem is that the police officers who are implementing it are not racially unprejudiced. I had a massage today, and my massage therapist is African-American, and we happened to be talking a little bit about that. And she says, I, I think there are an awful lot of white Americans who think the racial problem is over. If you're not carrying a, a southern flag on the back of your pickup truck and you don't love Adolf Hitler, then you're not a racist. When in their view was that there's all kinds of other racially prejudiced attitudes that Americans carry around with them. Some of those Americans are police. And I'm not sure that you can guarantee that the policemen in New York or anywhere else are, in fact, objective when they decide who it is they're going to stop and frisk. Now, let's be clear. When we, when we talk about the stop and frisk law, the, the law in New York City states that uh, New York, any officer uh, may stop and frisk an individual based on, quote-unquote, reasonable suspicion of a crime. Now, in the case brought before Judge uh, uh, Shreya Sheinlin, not Judge Judy, but I wonder if she's actually related. They probably are. They're all judges up there. Uh, Judge Sheinlin stated that in her ruling that, uh, it, that stop and frisk is, is disproportionate and discriminatory I'm sorry, discriminatory stopping of blacks and Hispanics in violation of the Equal Protection Clause of the Constitution. Those supporting stop and frisk saying that you're hindering the officer's ability to do their job. Denise, this is a very fine line. I agree with Bob. I mean, my training as a lawyer, just like his, was you need real probable cause. And my question would be, what type of cause are they giving them? Just because you suspect somebody of a crime, I mean, I could look over across the street and say, hmm, I think somebody just littered, or maybe I suspect they're about to litter. But did I see them litter? No. But Denise, you're talking, you're talking about the officers who are trained in, you know, in criminal and civil law uh, to enforce those laws. In their judgment, they have the ability to and routinely go in front of court saying, this was my probable cause. And then you go back to what Congressman Al just said, that if they have this training, then why are the majority of the folks that they are stopping African American and Hispanic? Well, okay. we just get this fact out. According to, according to the, the lawsuit, uh, which, was, which was brought by uh, an organization, the 
Oh gosh, the the uh, oh anyway, the, the, the plaintiffs in this case basically brought facts that said that ninety uh, percent of those eighty percent of those who were stopped were either black or Hispanic, and of those eighty percent, ninety percent of those were released after being found not to commit any crimes. Alan Moore. Uh, yeah. Okay. First of all, you guys don't like this probable cause issue. That was not the basis of the decision. They, they, the, the judge did not say they weren't establishing probable cause. They said it wasn't equally being applied. It was an equal protection issue, not a probable cause. So, but why are they stopping all of these minorities? Well, because in the last 12 years of Bloomberg's mayoral uh, time, mayoral service, he took a look at where the crime was, and lo and behold, most of the crime, most of the violent crime was in poor areas where most of the people are minorities. They flooded those areas with police, said, use your judgment. Most of those police are minorities, too, who go into those areas. They are where the crime is. They are taking a look. They're using whatever <laughs> their training is. And I think they have a fair amount of training. And they mostly are they're, they're checking out the, the people who were there. And they're, they, I, I was listening to the fact that 88% of those who were stopped don't have a weapon or drugs or an issue and are released. And I'm sitting there thinking, you mean more than one out of 10 of those who are stopped uh, have, a, have a weapon, even though they know these cops and stop and frisk is going on, or have drugs? Wow. To me, that seemed like a huge percentage. Now, I heard one one commentary, commentator say, well, they should be doing this all over the city. I'm thinking, well, wait, they should take some of these these police officers out of the high crime areas and, and take them down to Wall Street, um, where I, I, I'm pretty confident that their success rate is going to fall way, way down. They have to they have to balance this stuff. This is a hard issue. And, and, and the, the last thing is, most of the violent crime in these poor areas is minority against minority. So what you typically have is you, you have a lot of these these uh, these liberal Democrats on the Upper East Side saying, oh, horrors, horrors, racial profiling. And a lot of the people who live in the area saying, we need more cops. Stop these young kids and take their guns away from them. And just knowing you're out there checking means a lot of them leave their guns at home. Oh, that's awful. And I, I, he's I, crap. And I, and, I, and I have to say that awful is because then you've got young men who are subjected continuously to being stopped and frisked mainly because of the color of their skin. And that, then you have, not true, then you have though, to Denise. wonder why they don't like the police and why they write songs about how they don't like the police. That's crazy. Yeah, Congressman Al. <clears throat> My youngest daughter married an African-American. And uh, he uh, had a master's degree in sports medicine. Uh, he was a trainer for the Washington Redskins. When they would go out at night and have two cars, he would always say, I'll take the lead, I'll, and you drive behind me so that if I'm stopped, you'll know that I'm stopped. And you know. and on, on several occasions, in fact, he was pulled over. So... Lori would just pull up behind him and stop and wait until they let him go, which they always did because they never found anything. And 
he just considered this a part of having to be uh, driving while black. Uh, now, you can't tell me that the police that are off doing this other stuff don't have the same levels of prejudice. They, they yeah. do. And uh, that's what I think has us on this side of the table so upset. Well, just remember, but, no, just remember though, these guys are going into the poor, high-crime neighborhoods. Most of the, it's not like they're picking blacks over whites. It's most, it's 95-plus percent minority. That's the population that they are looking at and making decisions about. It's, it's not driving around out on the out on the expressway on the or the freeway or the parkway and saying there's a black guy let's pull him over this is putting the police where the problem is and a lot of the public is highly supportive of the fact that violent crime in new york in the last 10 years is down 80 percent okay get, hold, get, hold, hold on hold on denise crep first then congressman now just because they're flooding the neighborhood, and you've got, and you're looking at the percentages, saying, "Okay, th this is why the percentages are high." Doesn't make this right. I mean, Alan, we're, we're, we're have you ever heard um, some, some of the rap songs these days? Yes. And, and the violent tinge and um, the language that they're using. This is coming from the hood. The hood is angry. The hood is angry because the police. They're flooding into their neighborhoods, and they're stopping and frisking them on a regular basis. That does not make a successful population. What that means is you've got people that are angry that are going to lash out at others. That's going to create problems. That's going to create tension. Congressman Now, In addition to which, if, if Alan's argument holds water, then why was my son-in-law out in a non-high-crime area uh, obeying the law, driving down the road, why was he stopped and not my daughter? It's apples and oranges, Al. We're talking about New York City, high crime areas, and if and, and, and any of us who were driving around there would be taking some risk. I utterly miss my point. My point is that there is prejudice in this society, and when you write a law like this, you better expect that prejudice to be acted on. Okay, but let's all, let's let's also look at the fact that the the law does not give them carte blanche. Now, the probable cause, the, the probable cause to stop and frisk an individual used by the police officers is broad. Basically, it gives the judgment of stop and frisk the probable cause to the police officers, and that's in any jurisdiction. I still have to have, if I'm a police officer, whether I'm in rural Bullock County, Georgia, or I'm in the 112th Precinct up in Queens, New York, I still have to have probable cause. They're not even citing the probable cause as the issue. They're citing, as Alan pointed out, the, the disproportionate number of minorities that were stopped and frisked. Nobody has asked the question of, did they have probable cause? Denise Krepp, I go to you. Is, are gang colors probable cause? No. What gang colors, crips and bloods? If you're wearing colors, that's not probable cause. No. I'm Why? Not, I'm not going to say that's probable cause. Why? I could be wearing, you know, the gang colors and wouldn't even know it. 
But I'm a white woman, and I would walk in, and you're going to tell me because I've got gang colors on. I'm, I'm giving if you're, wa- if you're walking, if you're walking around certain parts of of the Bronx, certain parts of Harlem, absolutely. And you know what, Justin? That doesn't mean you're going to do something that's wrong. That that just means that you're wearing a certain piece of clothing. Bob Hines. Someone said that ninety percent of the people who were stopped, you know, there was nothing wrong. If the system is working to to us in a situation where, in effect, ninety percent of the people are being stopped, then the rationale for their stopping is out of is out of whack. It's just it it, it why because ninety if if, if you're wrong ninety percent of the time. You think if you're wrong 90% of the time, that's not a good law. Carl Tubin. Carl Tubin. I think I've kind of been in the middle of all this. On, on the one hand, I, I agree that um, that uh, there's been wrong in this situation, that people have been uh, stopped and frisked and put in jail probably for no apparent reason. Hopefully, when they went into court, they got they they, they got out of it, uh, and 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 it gives them a record, which uh, a lot of African Americans. Well, Carl, Carl, let me stop you right there, real quick, because again, if they're stopped and frisked, if the officer deems that there's probable cause, does not mean that they're under arrest. They're being detained as part of a police investigation. If they release them, there's no record of it. Yeah, but still, even in that situation, there's anger. In the person who was stopped and frisked, because he, he, he because they didn't find anything, uh, and, and that sometimes is worse than having to go through the whole court system, because they're angry and they're and they're they're liable to do something later that's that's uh, uh, harmful. The other the other point is is that if you're going to have a stop and frisk situation, I think it's incumbent upon the police department that's doing this to train a group of policemen to be more sensitive and, and more aware of, of the situation that they're getting into. Carl Tubin, I can tell you for a fact that every active duty and reserve NYPD officer goes through racial sensitivity training on an annual basis as part of their continuing education. That that unto itself, I mean, you're talking about arguably the most highly trained law enforcement community in the country, if not the world. That does not mean that overrides stereotypes, and that doesn't mean it overrides internal biases. But, Just because you're well, sitting in a classroom being told that you... But wait a minute, you're making, the car, wait a minute. Denise Krupp, you're making the assumption that every one of the police officers that are stopping and frisking and instituting stop and frisk are white guys. No, I'm not, Justin. What I'm going to is the fact of what Bob just said. If 90% of that, the stops are for folks that didn't do anything, then you need to reevaluate why you are stopping people and reevaluate the reason for what you're well, doing. Well, wait a minute. I, I go back to the question. Bob Hines, I'll go to you for the question. There are black and Hispanic and Asian officers that routinely institute stop and frisk as part of their daily patrols. Okay. Is that if a black police officer stops a black individual somewhere up in 236th Street up in the Bronx, is that racial profiling? Let's say he's done it ten times and only one of them is, has anything to be 
stopped for. Yeah, something's wrong. So you're saying that, that a black officer is instituting racial profiling? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. You don't think well, it's I, a I, you don't think what, it's a good thing? No, no, no. Okay. So, so just. <laughs> you don't think I, it's good I'm, thinking, I, 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 there's sort of two issues that we're, that we're, that we're mixing up here. If you are in an area where 100% of the people on the street are racial minorities, then Law enforcement. Yeah, it'll be male. It'll it'll be there will be other things that these guys have done. I ten years ago, three thousand people were murdered on the streets of New York in one year. Right. Last year it was about three hundred. Right. So the the whole point here is there's no free lunch. There's no easy answer. There it's is there profiling in America? Absolutely there is. Is there profiling? In our neighborhoods and out on the highways and with with your son-in-law, absolutely. And it is it is horrible, distasteful, unfair. It leads to all sorts of terrible outcomes. Um, and the society is working on it. Some with greater success than others. Sometimes the you know the training can help. Um, it's hard to clear things out of people's minds that they're they're sort of born into and that they think of and we we constantly struggle at it but but the New York case and I don't know all the details obviously none of us do but 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 what I do know and as I listened to this conversation this morning on 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 TV where where one you know a, a columnist from the Washington Post his answer was well what okay it's not that it's wrong but they need to do it in other parts of the city just to spread out the pain at, whereas the, the, the police are having to take limited resources and and try to put it where the the violent crime rates are the highest. The fa- this 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 ten percent uh, success rate, if you will, or rate is intriguing because obviously the more that people know that they could be stopped and frisked, the less the more careful they are, the less likely they are to be carrying their weapon. And if they don't have a weapon. Uh, on their on their person, if they've got one, you know they just know they could be stopped and frisked. So so it, it has a chilling effect on behaviors that they're trying to prevent. And, and let me also point this out too. I, I can tell you this has happened to me twice in two different cities. The, the most recent one was here in Washington D.C. I'm driving around at midnight. I'd gotten lost in an area which is huge minority population. For those inside Washington, D.C., we're talking about the Anacostia section of Washington, D.C. Large black community, some Hispanic community. I'm a white man in a 2009 Toyota, and I get stopped by a Mart cruiser, a Metropolitan PD cruiser. Two officers gets out. One comes over to my window, roll down the window. He says, what are you doing here? I got lost. Is that... Is that bad? What probable cause? To me, if I wanted to go to the extreme, I would say that that officer racially profiled me, a white guy in a minority neighborhood late at night. Oh, I must be looking for drugs or prostitutes or other criminal activity. Is that racially profiling? Yes. Denise Krepp? Yes. And is that wrong? Yes. Why is that wrong? Why would it be right? (laughs) Well, wait a minute. If for no other reason, wait a minute, if for no other reason, the officer is questioning, A, 
he's got probable cause in saying, look, this is out of the ordinary. This guy is driving around an area he does not fit in. This guy could either A, be lost in an area that may not be safe for him, or B, is engaged in criminal activity. Let me ask you a question. Is there any law school in the country, I ask the lawyers, where being out of the ordinary would be considered probable cause? No. No. Absolutely not. Wait a minute. Define what is the probable cause. See, I, yeah, I'm with I'm with Justin in his example. He's he's in a place where where very few white males are driving around at midnight. So he may looking be for a prostitute. He may be lost, or he or he may be looking for drugs or a prostitute. So he may be interested in engaging in, in a criminal act, or he may be lost. So a policeman pulls him over to check it out. I'm guessing they directed you out of they there. They said, make a left here, make a right here, and just get right on the freeway. And don't suck. You get to the other side. You of were as a you were glad to be profiled. I the fact that got you out I did here. not feel racially profiled. I felt like look these cops and and being former law enforcement, I can tell you, it's not racially profiling. It is this is not in the normal of that community. Cops have to patrol their precincts, their community, and deal with what is they have to sometimes use their gut as to what is outside the norm. And that and that's a tough job. Bob Hines. Your example just is is just the reverse of what goes on so much. Your example is just exactly why this is such a damn hard thing to deal with. Exactly. And you you just we are going to have to continue to try to educate our officers. We're going to have to try to find ways to uh, educate people in schools so they don't end up walking around the street mugging people. We've got all kinds of problems in here, and there's no answer that is going to solve this problem. Denise Crack. Go ahead. Oh, sorry, Denise Crack. To me, it's a very interesting statement because did you know at a certain point in time, Anacostia was actually a white neighborhood. That's not today, though, Denise. No, but what I'm getting at, Justin, is the fact that we are segregating ourselves, that that, that, that is increasingly happening, and if we're doing that... But that's not the police's fault. The police still have a job to do, Denise. I, you know, look, and I understand, I'm, I'm the most non-racial person out there. You ask any of my friends, and they'll tell you, I am the most equally... Opportunities to guy that you I, I would, I would, I would, I would absolutely uh, support you in that statement. But I've noticed another thing, and it's whenever it turns to police, as a former policeman, you grab it by the throat and shake it until it's dead. Yep. And, uh, <laughs> and, and I would suggest we're approaching five o'clock, and this topic is dead. Wow. Oh, he, oh, he doesn't shake it to death. He doesn't one, like it. One last ahead. point. I am reminded of earlier in this conversation, Alan said it might be a good idea if we would have taken some of those police officers out of the black neighborhoods and put them in Wall Street. And gee, if they had done that, we might have not had this great recession. <laughs> Come on, let's do it. By the way, the, the, the last thing I do want to point out is in Judge Shiland, in Judge Shiland's ruling, she's forcing Commissioner Ray Kelly to appoint an observer force just on this and in the highest crime areas now requiring police officers to wear body cameras 
which unto itself is another disaster. We'll talk about that in another discussion. But Al <laughs> thinks this is bad. I think this is. I think it's a fascinating discussion. Yeah. Well, I, I also think that the problem that Al referred to in his own family is 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 much more serious because that's everywhere. That's that's. It's it's unusual that a white guy is in Anacostia at midnight. It's not unusual at all for an African American man to, to be, be in, in, in white areas any time of the day, including midnight and after. And they are much, much, much more vulnerable to being stopped and questioned and frightened. That is wrong, and that's the big challenge here. I just don't think that's exactly what's going on in New York City. Carl Tubin. Yeah. <clears throat> The whole thing about the discussions between African-American fathers and their children uh, around the Trayvon Martin thing. It's also about these other things. It's about police, and it's about harassment, and it's, it's, it's about uh, watching yourself so you don't get in trouble, so the police aren't going to come to you and try to, to uh, either arrest you or, or find out what you're doing. Look, make, make no mistake about it. It's racially pro, racial profiling is unconstitutional. It's wrong. I'll be the first to say that. But what I will what I will say is, is that it is quick to paint with a brush what is racial profiling and what is done in the course of an officer doing his job. Point blank. When we come back, we're going to talk about how successful the sequester is. I don't know how the discussion can get any more interesting than the one we just had, but we're going to talk about it anyways. This is Backroom Politics Live from Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. It's happy hour. We'll be back in three minutes. Happy hour on Backroom Politics is sponsored by... Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., America's premier cigar tavern. Stay with us as the roundtable continues after we order our drinks, order our cigars, and get ready for the second hour of Backroom Politics. Stay with us. We'll be back in two minutes.
You know, for those who listen to Backroom Politics and know about Shelley's Backroom, they think of it as some sort of cigar bar where politicians go to smoke their cigars and drink their martinis. Actually, what you don't know about Shelley's Backroom, Shelley's Backroom has one of the greatest menus in the city. I kid you not. You've got the campfire wings, famous campfire wings, one pound of roasted, not fried, Seasoned marinated jumbo chicken rings served with their own special honey mustard sauce. Folks, if you like chicken wings, you've never had the campfire wings. Best wings in the city, bar none, I guarantee. If you don't like it, Al, you can call us up and tell us that you don't like it. Uh, You have daily specials. Come down on a day when they have the Justin Chicken Sandwich. The sandwich named after me. Breaded chicken breast, provolone cheese, Thick-cut bacon on a Kaiser roll served with a honey mustard sauce. Folks, it doesn't get more artery-clogging than that, but it is worth it. Come down to Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C., the premier sponsor of Backroom Politics. here live at Shelley's Backroom, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. This is Backroom Politics Live on Blog Talk Radio. A little bit of a technical difficulty we fixed, and we're going to continue the discussion now on sequestration. Uh, the sequestration talks have gotten a new, bigger-rated, newly uh, energized because of the upcoming budget battle, but there are many that are looking at sequestration as being successful or a detriment to our economy, maybe hindering the economy in some instances. Uh, Denise, I'm going to start off with you. When, when we look at sequestration, Democrats bought into it, Republicans bought into it. A lot of people say sequestration was successful. Was it successful? If you're defining success as saving the government money, yes. If you're defining success as having people on the job and being fully employed to do what they're supposed to be doing, no. We still have a lot of people around the country that have furlough Mondays, furlough Fridays, and I would be willing to bet that more than one member of Congress who is uh, currently enjoying his or her August recess is hearing about that in their own congressional districts and hearing about the pain that sequestration is causing their districts. Bob Hines, is sequestration in your eyes successful? I would say, based upon what the goal of sequestration was, 
it is successful because it is saving the government money substantially. It's saving $50 billion this year. Uh, that's not to be sneezed at. Uh, the most interesting thing about it is that the, the, the president is now trying to uh, find a way to uh, euthanize it, if you will, uh, with his, quote, balanced approach, which means that we're going to cut off, we're going to stop the uh, sequestration and uh, try to go forward and you know year by year. But sequestration, sequestration is... If it, if it lives out its life of 10 years, it will be a, a, a very different uh, world than we might have, we might want it. Congressman Al. Sequestration was a bad idea from the beginning. Uh, it is not the way to deal with the problem. <clears throat> it is uh, a meat axe to begin with, which means that uh, it, there's going to be a lot of bad things that happen even if it is successful in the sense that it's saving money. Saving money in a way that doesn't make sense, I, I think, is not a good idea. So I would say sequestration could not have been successful. Alan Moore. I agree with Al. There, there is nothing successful about, uh, it, well, and, and Denise, too, that, that nothing successful about sequestration. The purpose of sequestration, was not actually to save money. The purpose of sequestration was to create something that was such a meat axe, so dramatic, so stupid in its shape and form that no reasonable Congress even would allow it to exist. And yet, the lo and behold, the Congress did. That was true for a number of reasons, one of which is the White House overplayed its hand about what a disaster it was, go it was going to uh, bring on, and people said, oh, really now? Maybe we'll see. And the disaster is like a slow-moving tsunami. You can't really see it. The water's slowly rising. It affects people that Denise talked about, who she knows, but it affects bigger programs where you can't get around with a furlough. You can't, you can't furlough... Uh, uh, troops in the field. You can't furlough workers who are supposed to deliver new uh, armaments in the military. You can't furlough food stamps. Um, it, it is just a stupid, dumb way to to work. Politically, though, it is kind of cut both ways. It, it, it for temporarily reduced the deficit. We'll never know what what kind of benefits might have occurred had we done something more responsible to replace it. And remember, under sequester, we keep adding $50 billion a year to what has to be cut. So whatever you think about this year, and it hasn't done horrendous damage, it gets doubled and then tripled and then quadrupled over the years unless we change it. It really, really, really needs to be uh, changed and modified. Carl Tubin. You know, some of America's colleges have written to uh, the president that because of sequestration, we might not have a, a trained workforce. Uh, uh, Head Start has suffered because of sequestration. That's going to uh, hamper uh, young people. There are bunches of programs that are, are good for people and have proven successful are being torn apart because of sequestration. Denise Crap. You know, I, I want to talk about the way in which money flows. I mean, you know, 
when you're in the government, you talk about the spigot. You know, when you when does the spigot turn on? Well, just because Congress appropriates money and authorizes money doesn't mean that the money actually starts flowing on the next day. What usually happens is that there's a time delay. That time delay could be anywhere between a year to five years, depending on how the money goes out. It could be coming via grant. It could be coming via loans. I mean, there's just different ways to do it. So to get to where Alan is, I'm at, we don't, we haven't seen the impact yet. We haven't seen the impact in Middle America because they still have the money from ARA. They still have the money that was allocated several years ago. When we're going to be getting to see this is going to be next year and the year after that, which is going to make it even worse because then we're going to be cutting even more money, which means that the cuts are going to be more significant. And by the way, just to jump in, there's breaking news coming out of Louisiana. In St. Joseph, Louisiana, there is a gunman that has taken three hostages uh, in a bank in uh, Tensas Parish, northeastern Louisiana. Uh, it is an active situation. We'll keep an eye on it. Uh, there may be a bomb involved, although there's no confirmation of that. We'll keep an eye on that as we go through the show, and we'll update you with any updates on that. Bob Hines, back to you. Everything that I have heard about the sequestration not being a good thing uh, only confirms what I believe. And that is, I think Alan is right, it's the worst thing that could possibly happen except what would have happened if it hadn't happened. Because we just go right along and spend and spend and spend. What's really good is I believe that the first year has scared enough people Democrats are really upset about so many programs that are being cut. The military is being cut, and the Republicans are concerned about that. Education programs are being hurt. There's programs all over the face of the country that are being hurt. And why? Because the blank in Congress hasn't got the brains, and the president hasn't got the willing to negotiate, and the problem is they got to force them to sit down and talk. The only way you're going to get it done is if they're really scared that the next year might be even worse. Congressman now, But the Congress did pass a farm bill. I mean, the farm bill has been a questionable expenditure for decades. And uh, the House passed, uh, took, out, took out food stamps Thanks. and passed it. Senate passed it. Uh, while all of this cutting is going on elsewhere. I mean, you would think that if you're going to cut somewhere, uh, taking away the, the subsidies that are being paid to people who live on Park Avenue and just have bought some land out there and have taken it out of production, and therefore they sit there owning property, they sit in the, their, their, their penthouse in, in New York City, and uh, and get paid three four hundred thousand uh, dollars for for this. Isn't it too bad that there are so many senators who are beholden to so many people like that? That's right. But, 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 but I minute. think those people on Park Avenue, when they go into the street, should be stopped and frisked. There, there, there we go. Bring it up again. There we go. But the reality is, the only way we're going to straighten out our fiscal problems is get. Administration and the Congress together and begin to straighten out so many of the programs we've got that are totally out of, out of control. And we're not doing it, and the only way to force it is to let everybody start saying, oh my God, you know, we passed this crazy sequestration, and look what it's doing. 
and we're looking at it in the first year. And look, it's it's a, it's got nine years to go. If we don't fix this, it's going to be a disaster. But and, and unfortunately, that's slow motion. But Denise, slow motion. I want to go to Denise. Denise, well, we're talking about but right it's guaranteed now. slow motion. That's why you got to stop it. But I mean, going off of Bob's point, right now our budget is running a deficit of trillions of dollars every year, and our national debt now exceeds our entire annual input of our country. That means that we are not just Spending out of control. We are overspending out of control. Does sequestration put a stop on all sides? Both sides get hurt? Well, both sides get hurt, but one of the things I was hoping sequestration would do was force people to take a look at programs and say, do they work and why are we doing some of them? I mean, there's been a really interesting series of articles uh, written by the Washington Post over the past couple of months about programs that are extremely outdated. I mean, programs that were started for reasons that nobody remembers anymore but are still in existence. Why aren't we taking a look at some of these programs that are clearly outdated and saying, hey, wait a second, why are we doing certain things and why aren't we changing these procedures so that we can save some money and spend it somewhere else? But, but Alan Moore, we look at sequestration, when, I mean, going off what Denise was saying, we had the opportunity, well, we, Congress had the opportunity to do exactly what she is proposing. And they let it slide, they let it slide, and then all of a sudden the weapon of mass destruction button is pushed, and boom, we have sequestration. Well, let's remember what, what we were, what, what the Congress and the President, sequestration originated with the President, and Republicans embraced it, uh, Democrats embraced it, not all, but most, saying, this is really bad, and if this buys us some time, we will. This will force our hand. We'll have to to stay at it and come up with some kind of resolution. But the focus of the answer was going to be changing, slowing down the growth of entitlement spending, and ramping up tax revenues to some unknown degree in some way, shape, or form. Well, when push came to shove, nobody wanted to do either one of those enough to walk away from the stupid meat axe draconian changes that were initiated just step one in uh, in the sequester of just across the board cuts virtually everywhere so you cut everything good and bad you don't touch the entitlements which is what is poses the greatest risk for us in the long run and you decline to to take another look at the at the uh, at at tax reform and, and taxes, remember at the end of the year when we were at the verge of shutting down government still another time, there was several hundred billion dollars in new taxes that were imposed. And at the time we said, you know what the problem is here? The Republicans are going to say, we've already given on taxes. Don't come back to us for more. And that's where we now are with this new stalemate. The, the Democrats wanting more from taxes before they will do the entitlements, and the Republicans saying we already did the tax, 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 You know, you hear us talk about Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. 
being the place to be. America's premier cigar tavern, place to make new friends or visit old friends, or even have a lively political discussion like we do here on Backroom Politics. But what you may not know, Shelley's is the place for private parties. Shelley's Back Room is available to host events for groups of 10 to 250. From cocktail receptions to sit-down dinners, Shelley's can provide custom menu options to suit your needs and budget. Although Shelley's is a smoke-friendly environment, Shelley's can make accommodations for non-smokers based on the side of your party, but heck, why would you want to? With a cigar menu like they have here, why would you even consider going smoke-free? Event pricing varies based on the time of the day of the week chosen for your event. For more information on private parties at Shelley's Back Room, go to www.shelleysbackroom.com slash private-party. Shelley's Back Room, it's a place to be, as Bob likes to say it. It's also a place for private parties. And we're back here live at Shelley's Back Room. Uh, for those of you guys who are listening, yes, that was Alan Moore saying tax, 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 tax. Uh, but we'll go back to that. Uh, you've already repeated yourself. But I, I, I do want to go back to one of the, in defense of what Denise was saying, one one of the issues that everybody brings up, you know, they, they complain about my 25-minute flight delays out of, out of uh, LaGuardia. They complain about the long lines at TSA and BWI. Uh, what they don't talk about, though, Denise Krepp, is the effects that they've had. I think Carl Tubin and you brought up, like, on education. Uh, a lot of programs had start, as well as other programs, whether it's Indian education, migrant education, whether it's uh, advanced technical training programs. We also don't talk about some of the training that our military gets that have been affected. Uh, that seems to have impacted, but... At the same time, the argument can be made, hey, we are cutting spending. It's not pretty, but it's effective. Right. But what we did was we said, all right, everybody takes a haircut. And by that means, you know, everybody gets cut 7% or 10%. That doesn't mean that that's the right way to do that. It means that it's just kind of equal pay. And my argument is that you should be focusing on programs that are obsolete, not needed, and have no purpose. Bob Hines. Focus on those. I couldn't agree more, but I can't imagine something that's going to be more difficult because there may be a program that is outdated, but it has friends on the hill. There may be a program that ought to be changed fundamentally, but the way it's going right now, it has friends on the hill. And what happens is those things just kept keep flowing right along and money gets added to other programs and new programs and suddenly we're discovering why we're in debt, $15 trillion. And, and, and the reality is that we have got to go in and clean our house up. And the only reason I said I love so, I, I'm happy with the sequester is I hope that it will force Congress and the administration, which has been extremely reluctant to change anything. I would love to see everybody sit down and say, look, Every, every piece of the pie is on the table. Now let's take a look at how we do it. Let's take a look at what we can save someplace and what we need to add other places. And it's all over the, it's all can be done 
if we're willing to do it, and it's the hardest thing members of Congress are ever going to have to do. Congressman Al. Let's, let's, let's talk a little bit about the Tea Party here. This is going to be a difficult thing to do anyway, even if you have uh, people who, are, who know how to compromise. Uh, if, you're going to, if you're going to rewrite the tax laws and reform them, that's going to be very controversial. Uh, so it's going to require people who are willing to give a little here to get a little there. Uh, if you're going to redo the agriculture program and, and refocus it on the small family farm rather than the corporate yeah. farm, yeah. that is also going to be controversial. But as long as the speaker has got himself stymied by a large part of his party that doesn't want to do anything and does and thinks any compromise is evil and a creature of the devil. As long as you have that, you're never going to sit down and wrestle with the real problem. Denise Crack. But hope that what's happening right now during the August recess is that the members from some of those states are hearing about it. I mean, you have large military installations that are located in very rural populated parts of the country. You have large government operations that are located in very rural populations. These institutions, installations, government buildings are all getting cut. It doesn't matter where they are, they're all getting cut, and it's my hope that their constituents are going to them and saying, what are you Yahoo's doing? Yeah, but Denise, wouldn't, one, wouldn't or couldn't one argue that those rural installations were built on over excess spending? Some of those jobs in the rural, not, not saying take away the jobs, but those jobs may have been inflated spending on some part, whether it's Department of Agriculture, DOD. Uh, Maybe DOD is the, is the worst, is, is the best example of what's wrong. Oh, a lot, of, a lot of people say the Department of Agriculture is just as bad, if not worse. Uh, and, and I wouldn't argue with that. But, but, I mean, but if we keep giving the military weapon systems that they don't want, geez. Carl Tubin. It's not only weapon systems. There are there are uh, cities within cities in Afghanistan that were built by the military for our use and are empty. Yeah. There was a thing in the paper uh, uh, last week about a never been city. used, never been used, but it was built yeah. and it cost millions of dollars. But Bob Hines, Al said something very good there, with talking about the fact that there are these these the Tea Party folks. This is going to be their moment of come to Jesus. This is going to be the reality time. Are they going to be willing to say, okay, administration, let's deal with the entitlements. Okay, let's deal with some of this stuff. We, will we be willing to say, we will give you some revenues if you will do that? My guess is this is going to be so tough and so difficult that the Tea Party people, hopefully because of what Denise says, some of the folks back home are saying, well, look, let's not blow the whole damn ship up. Let's try to get it organized. I think this is going to be one of the most interesting fall congressional sessions in many, many years because they're going to have to deal with not only getting a, 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 a some kind of a continuing resolution through to run the government, at least for a few months, and then to get another one probably, and then they're going to move on to debt ceiling. And those two things are going to give 
everybody a chance to say, we've got to clean our act up, we've got to cut here, we've got to, we've got to support over here, and we've got to restructure the way the government works. But Alan Moore, again, all politics are local. It's a not in my backyard. I want you to cut the, in the case of defense, I want you to kill that base because that base doesn't do a whole bunch, but don't kill the base in my backyard because I won't get reelected. How do we offset that? Is there anybody who has the political courage to say, yep, this base in my backyard is useless? Uh, right now, no. But remember the environment we're in. If, 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 any of, if, 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 if those of us around the table could have a $100,000 lifestyle and earn just $60,000, wouldn't we want that? Wouldn't, wouldn't, wouldn't we want to keep that going? I mean, how sweet would that be? Of course. That's the U.S. government. We uh, we love that $100,000 lifestyle, and we love the fact that we're only paying $60,000 for it. What's the problem? And uh, the, pro the problem is that it's catching up with us and that we have to make some really hard decisions. Now, are people talking about those decisions right now? No. The, the main the main conversation out in the environment politically right now is let's not allow spending to occur after September 30th, after the, the federal fiscal year ends, unless we can kill Obamacare. Let's provide no funding for Obamacare, and if we can't succeed at that, let's shut down government. Now, there are voices. There's, there's a group of folks. Who are and it's most of them, most of them are in the Senate right now, frankly. Um, who are saying, if you if you vote for funding any piece of Obamacare, if you fund it, you've bought it. So where's our principles? Where, where does it stand? And meanwhile, other folks who've been around a while say, you know, we tried this, we tried this back in '95, and we got killed. And and it's not going to go well for Republicans if we shut down government over Obamacare or some change to the sequester. It's, it, this is all a little more than a month away. This is six weeks out that we have to take step one, and then we have to go through probably by the end of the year figuring out something. Are we going to we will figure out something to keep government going. It's not clear that we will come up with a replacement for the sequester. Well, but, but Congressman Al, I, I go back to the question of courage. You know, we, we, we've got basically a political stalemate here in Washington. Either defund Obamacare or we're going to make sequestration look like a minuscule part of getting this thing back in line. We're going to institute all kinds of stuff, including a government shutdown. How do you, as a former congressman, go back to your constituents and saying, well, you guys want Obamacare, but i got to figure out a way to pay for that. Shut down this government operation. You demagogue it. I mean, you know, uh, the, 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 the people, the ultra-conservatives can uh, use all of their rhetoric uh, and impress the, the local Kiwanis Club. The Democrats can use all of their standard rhetoric and uh, and, and do the same for, for, at the Lions Club. Uh, you got to remember, all of these yahoos up there got elected by somebody. And you're pointing to Capitol Hill. Yep. Okay. When I say yahoo, visual not really good on radio, Al. Okay. I am pointing at the Capitol now when I say the yahoos. Clear it up, and, and the 
And the fact is that somebody elected all of those people up there. Now, there's some very good people up there, and there are some very incompetent people up there. And the people who elected the incompetent people are a part of the problem, too. But, you know, I, I, I look at people, Congressman, I'll go back to you on this. I look at people like Claire McCaskill from Missouri, yep. Senator from Missouri, Democrat. She's got a really tough situation in front of her where you've got a, a wide combination of government agencies that employ a lot of people, spend a lot of money in that state. At the same time, it is arguably a somewhat red conservative state when it comes to their socialization of health care or other programs. How does somebody like Claire McCaskill deal with something like that? She's not going to say shut down my bases in Missouri, but she's also going to say don't take away those jobs. At the same time, she supports Obamacare. Well, I'm, I'm not sure that she would react the way you say you react. Obviously, there are some cuts. I, re I remember a very fiery. Uh, it wasn't a, it wasn't a Democratic caucus. It was a, 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 a leadership meeting, uh, and Jim Wright was the uh, speaker, and he was proposing a tax increase. And uh, there was a, another gentleman from Texas a very senior member from Texas who said, but Jim, you'll defeat every Democrat in the... And, and, and the speaker had a terrible temper. I remember him getting up. Uh, his face was as red as the flowers on her, Denise's dress. Another helpful visual. Another helpful visual. Thanks, Al. Red poppies. Forget-me-nots. And pointing at the guy and said, did you come here to govern or did you come here to get reelected? And we don't know the answer to that question. Right. And, and, and the problem is, yeah, but, but, it, but it would take some of that kind of courage. And uh, it's uh, there hasn't been a demonstration of much courage on Capitol Hill lately. Denise Krepp. And I'd say that there needs to be. I, I mean, I... It's awful looking at somebody in the face and saying, you are not essential. I had to do that during the first round when this was threatened, and I had to pull up all of my folks as chief counsel, and I had to work with the chief financial officer, and we had to make decisions. Who was essential and who wasn't essential? So we, we had to make that decision, and then we had to convey that. It is truly, truly awful to look at somebody when you know that they have families, when you know they have children, when you know that they have bills, and to say, I'm sorry, the government has decided that you are non-essential, and if we decide to close the government down, you will not be coming in and you will not be paid. So congressmen and women, I strongly recommend you develop some courage and some backbone so that you too can have that same conversation. Bob Hines? I think both that what Al said and Denise said uh, are exactly right. It's, you know, the House and the Senate are made up, by and large, of, of good people of good will who want to do the right thing. They have their ideologies, they have their idiosyncrasies, and they have their political caucuses, and it's 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 they have problems to solve. This is probably as big a problem fiscally that this country has has seen in, in my lifetime right now in many respects because 
the, the revenues are not large enough to even come close to taking care of the, of the entitlement programs. And the government, temporarily, because of the sequester between now and 2015, is going to probably, you know, reduce the deficit. But after that, it just goes up on about 3 or 4% a year for the next 50 years. They're going to have to find a way to, to, to do just what Denise and Al said. They're going to have to find a way to be almost heroic. Carl Tubin. You know, we all talk about everybody getting together and talking and solving all these problems. And then you have a, 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 a congressman in Texas who sat around a little town hall meeting people around the table, etc., saying that if there was a vote in the Congress today to impeach the President in the House of Representatives, it would pass. And that doesn't help things at all. But, but Alan Moore, going back to sequestration, the ripping off the Band-Aid approach, some are saying, well, wait a minute, it's working, we're cutting our spending, but it's painful to a lot of Americans who are, as Denise said, considered non-essential. Programs are being cut that, in, you know, if you're a mother of two young children in Kansas and that Head Start program is essential to that child's development, hey, wait a minute, we got a problem here. At what point do we realize the ripping off the Band-Aid isn't effective? We've got to get strategic in the surgery in cutting the spending in excess programs. Well, unfortunately, the... The, the credibility of the administration was harmed significantly when they talked about how horrible things were going to be after sequestration, and lo and behold, not a whole lot happened. It's this slow-moving cancer that that uh, looks good on paper in terms of lowering the deficit and looks disastrous in terms of being responsible as a government on actually governing and making decisions about what makes sense and what doesn't. Um, I, I don't it, it only gets worse because each year the sequester has to climb to another 50. The old 50 and the new 50, as Denise pointed out, it takes a while for the impacts of these things to show up. And we don't need enormous amount of pain just in spending. What we really need to do is to avoid enormous amount of pain in terms of these long-term deficits, the uncertainties in the in, uh, in individual decision-making, in the private sector, and so on, we, we need a, t a tax law that is predictable for a period of years. We need some sense that the unaffordable entitlement programs that are going to ultimately bankrupt us or divert you know, an extraordinary amount of our resources into, a, into a, a particular areas, we need to know that we're on a path that, that is sustainable that isn't going to result in massive inflation and everybody around this table has some sense of what that means um, but we're not there yet and I don't know if you know it's, it's hard to know if 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 we get there we uh, we can be hopeful um, but uh, typically we need a crisis and there is not a perception yet of crisis, and uh, and it may have to be interest rates that are two or three times as high as they now are that becomes the crisis. But I, I want to go back to the furlough issue. You know, Denise, you know, you talk about the impact of furloughs. I know for a fact that there is one segment in one department here in Washington where they were threatening furloughs, furloughs, furloughs. Nobody, nobody in that 
in that section of this department were furloughed. Not a single individual. It almost seems like there's selective furloughing going on. And it's done inside the department. Well, we're not going to take the furlough. We just won't hire this one individual. Does that seem hypocritical? Justin, there are people that aren't working on Fridays and Mondays around this country. There are people that were not supposed to be working on Fridays and Mondays that are still working on Fridays and Mondays. And I can tell you and what they, And they said, you know what, May, we don't need furlough. No, that's not what happened. I what know happened, for a fact that's what, true. I can tell you what happened and their chief financial officer cut something else. Right. Right. That's what they did. They cut, yeah. they cut something else. You know, if you want to start talking about cuts, let's start talking about what's going on with our dear Coast Guard. Admiral Path, because he so desperately wants his national security cutters, is cutting billets. So instead of keeping the Coast Guard at a level at which they need to be, which, by the way, is over 40,000, he is cutting them. Well, as you and I both know, the Coast Guard needs as many jobs as they possibly can get because there's over 90,000 miles about, of ocean. But, Denise, you're also talking about an organization for years going back, and we're getting a little bit in the weeds, and I'll just leave it at this. You're talking about an organization using Admiral Jim Loy, the former commandant of the Coast Guard, former Assistant Secretary of Homeland Security. The dull knife approach is that organization has been horribly underfunded for whoa, decades. Whoa, 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 decades. Whoa, I'm sorry, you and I are in terms of this. Jim Loy was a excellent commandant who did his best. No question, but you're talking about an agency that was underfunded. Weeds. Weeds. Yeah, 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 yeah we're getting weeds. Down. We'll talk about that later. But I do I do want to point out, though. The point made is yeah, true. That is very true. They are underfunded. I, I think that's a bad example. What I will use in this example is Department of Interior. What I will use as an example is, and I want to get a beat down in about five minutes from this one, Department of Education. I will talk about department like agriculture. Horrible. Horrible. Bob Hines? Well, let me just say this. In October, on October the 1st, the second year of sequestration starts. Now, it's up to Congress to fix it. They can do it. The administration, the executive, and the Congress, the legislative branch can come together and solve, at least begin to solve some of these problems. Now, it's all, you know, there's nobody around this table who hasn't spent so much time in Washington that they realize what I've just said sounds easy and is about as hard a thing as you can do. It's like climbing Mount Everest when you're 90 years old, and I don't think it happens very often. This is a very... If you're George Bush 41, you just go skydiving. That's true. We ought to get it back. We should. The reality is this is one of the hardest, biggest problems that, that any legislative and administrative body in our country has ever had to face, in, except for war. And the only way to do it is for everybody to be willing to get in and grab an oar and start rowing, which means the Tea Party people are going to have to give some things. The liberals who don't want to touch any damn program because every one they've ever seen is a fantastic program, they got to give something back. But everybody is going to have to work to find a way to solve our problem. Do we need more revenues as a Republican? I would say yes, we do. We've already given $640 billion in January. But Bob, so we're, we, we are we have we we have we're a little bit ahead of the administration right now. Alan Moore, Bob Hines is obviously wishing for a pink unicorn for, on Christmas too. <laughs> I like my unicorn red. <laughs> yes. Here, here. Head away, Alan. Me too. There we go. 
But I mean, obviously, what Bob Hines is talking about is a is an imaginary concept here in Washington D.C. Well, and, but let's re- and let's remember that anything that's going to get done in a short period of time is going to be rough, broad strokes. Yeah. It's not going to be the kind of the detailed oversight to say, let's look at at three thousand programs and figure out who gets who gets cut. Um, Who gets eliminated? Who gets cut 30%? Who gets cut 10%, 5%? Who gets an increase? Uh, This is rough justice uh, at this point, but but we keep putting it off. The president has made some proposals uh, on uh, on on Social Security, um, and and uh, he took a took a beating for it and got very little credit for it. It's a very incomplete proposal, but at least it was something to, to, to talk about changing the, uh, the cost of living indicator that, that's used for annual increases for people on Social Security. Very controversial, very difficult, very challenging. He has put that on the table. Uh, there were chances in the past to, to, that were missed to jump on that, incorporate that, embrace that. Um, and uh, and we're we're coming to another crisis time, and uh, I I certainly hope we don't just say let's keep riding this sequester red unicorn or pink or whatever. Congressman Al, one of the tragic things about this whole mess is that the people who could fix it are already in place. John Boehner, I would like to remind you cut a deal on education when he was chairman of the education committee with George Miller, who is one of the way out liberals, and Teddy Kennedy. Boehner knows how to cut a deal. And he's got his foot nailed to the floor by the Tea Party. Over on the other side, Steny Hoyer could work with uh, with 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 uh, the speaker, I know he could work with the speaker. Absolutely. Uh, but unfortunately, Nancy Pelosi didn't retire after she completely lost an election, uh, and she's standing there in the way. So we can't get at the people that could solve this problem rationally. That is just tragic. Well, I want to leave that to be the last uh, subject, uh, the last statement on this uh, on this topic, because now we've gone along, we've kind of gone into our last part of the show, and now it's time for my favorite part of the show, Tell Me a Story, where we talk about buzz, innuendo, rumor, and anything we want to shamelessly promote in our lives here at Backroom Politics. I'm actually going to take moderator's privilege. I'm going to start. A couple of things. Number one, congratulations to Cory Booker. Cory Booker, short of him being caught doing something nutty, is going to be the next junior senator from the state of New Jersey. I got to tell you something, as a Republican, I actually like Cory Booker. I like seeing him in the Senate. He's got a close relationship with my favorite, Chris Christie. He can work across the aisles. He doesn't demagogue because he doesn't have to. His actions, that's number one. Number two, congratulations to CNN for bringing back Crossfire on September 16th, what was one of the best political talk shows and what probably was a great basis for what this show is, is now coming back. It is the only truly good political talk show that was and will be again, I hope. So congratulations to CNN. Those are my stories. Uh, Congressman Al, tell me a story. 
I, w I would add PBS to that, and uh, and Washington Week in Review is an excellent program. Yeah, but nobody watches PBS anymore. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. You said there were no programs. <clears throat> I just named one and you dismissed it. Uh, I'm sorry, people programs that people watch. What, what you should have said is more people should watch it. Did yeah. you say that? You said no. It, it, he rudely interrupted you. I did. I'm did. sorry. I'm he sorry. Rudely that was rude. I'm sorry. And, and I'm I'm so overcome with humiliation that I'm not going to say anymore. No. <laughs> Drink okay. your martini, Al. Yeah, drink your martini, Al. <laughs> drink for the bottle. And Bob Hines, tell me a story. But I'm, I am going to be. Look, I'm Irish, so I got to be optimistic. I believe that the September and October, and they'll, they'll be ended in November and December. I'm sure it'll it'll take us well past past the end of the fiscal year in September and into the first quarter. I think we are going to make significant progress in our, our last hour's discussion because it is so clear, even to the Tea Party people, even to the Pelosiites, it is so clear that we have got to change how we do what we do, how we fund it, at what level, what is to be funded, what is, what is to be slowed down. We have got to find a way to do all of these things or we're going to just literally uh, leave the country in a disaster within the next decade. And I hope and I believe that while without solve, we have, we have no chance to put it all together, but I do believe that before the end of the year, we will, we will have gotten at least our foot on the beginning of the right path. Denise Krepp, tell me a story. There was an obituary in the Washington Post a couple of weeks ago, and uh, it, it was a man who uh, was born um, and probably wouldn't have risen to prominence except for something that had happened um, regarding another man, a uh, very young man at that point, named Emmett Till. Uh, the gentleman was a surprise witness at the Emmett Till uh, case, and he was able to point the finger at the 20-plus year old person um, who, uh, you know, basically did what he did to him himself. And, and it struck me, because we've been talking about um, race over the past couple of weeks, and I'd like to remind folks that what happened to Emmett Till wasn't in our history books, fact, it was in our lifetime. And the folks that were involved in that issue only died recently. So when you think about racism and you think about the folks that don't look like you, just remember that we are not that far from the civil rights movement. We are not that far from the civil war. And I'd encourage folks who are listening to the program to maybe give more thought to the person next to you who may not look like you and say, maybe I should do something different and maybe I should treat them, if I haven't already, with more respect. Good point. Good point. Carl Tubin, tell me a story. Uh, last week in the New York Times, uh, an article was written about the rearming of the Japanese military. Uh, it seems that uh, the Japanese have felt an enormous amount of pressure 
from China, uh, and they want to uh, have a, they want to be able to go to India and to other countries and say, uh, you know, we're a power, we're here, we'll protect you, uh, we want more trade, we want to do this and that and the other, blah, blah, blah. Now, I Googled today to see if there were any follow-up articles on this, and I could find none. Um, <clears throat> the only things I could find were um, things that the Indians were saying in 1946 and 47, and what other countries were saying about 46 and 47, about how this was a great thing that the Americans were doing to, to cut off the military from Japan, and now we don't have to worry about them anymore. Uh, I find that very interesting that nothing has been said by any other newspaper in this country that I could find on Google. Interesting. Alan Moore, tell me a story. Um, we talk about how nobody gets along, how things uh, things bog down, how Republicans and Democrats are always um, in, in each other's face and a lack of trust and so on. Well, two guys... Uh, uh, who don't get recognition, two staff members of the Senate, retired last week. One is a guy named Dave Schiappa. He was the secretary to the minority. He ran the cloakroom and the whole floor operation for the Senate. He started on the phones 32 years ago there, and he climbed the ladder, and he's been the secretary for the last dozen years. When they were saying goodbye to him last week, Harry Reid almost lost his composure because he is so fond of this top aide to Republicans. The other guy who stepped down is the senior economic aide to Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. He has been an aide to McConnell, to the Majority Leader Bill Frist before that, to Trent Lott very briefly before that. Brilliant guy who was in the middle of every major negotiation in recent years on how to keep government going. He he was characterized by a Democratic staff person who I think was trying to compliment him um, as an evil genius. And uh, my view, and, and these guys are all long-time friend, friends of mine, I sent them a note saying, I hope you consider it a badge of pride that you would be called an evil genius because there's nothing evil about anything you've ever done. They know you're a genius, but they're not willing to acknowledge that you are smarter and work harder than they do. Hence, they will just name call. But it's guys like that, and there are many of them in the House, the Senate, both parties. They're largely invisible to the country. We know what members are up to, and we get mad at a Tea Party guy here or a crazy liberal over there. But there are people who help make this stuff work and who will be putting in the long hours uh, and, and giving up weekends when we get the crunch time. And a shout-out to those two and a shout-out to guys like them who help make government work. You know, that, that brings up – that actually is a good point. You know, we, we, talk, about, we talk about the yahoos, Congressman Al, using your word. What we don't talk about are the staffers that every day go to the trenches – and actually go in there and do stuff. They're there till 4 o'clock in the morning writing the speeches, writing the bills. They're there on the phones, working the phones, 
trying to make a deal even though it may not be the right thing to do. Those staffers have got a hard job in front of them. And some of these guys are picked. They may not agree always with their member, but they tout that hard line when they have to. There's a lot of good staffers up there that I think if staffers would, if some of these staffers would run for Congress, you might actually get some stuff done. They've been there and done that, and I think that's a good thing. With that, on behalf of, oh, by the way, next week, best of show. We're going to rerun our show from two weeks ago. Great show, and we're going to rerun that next week. But on behalf of Congressman Al Swift, Bob Hines, Denise Kraft, Carl Tubin, and Alan Moore, I'm your moderator, Justin Russell. We will be back in two weeks live with will probably be a whole month of fiscal talk. Uh, hopefully, Bob, we can get some of our good friends back in here. We will have them there. We'll have them there. Uh, a special thanks to our producer, Alyssa Bonk. And uh, we are broadcasting live from Shelley's Back Room, 1331 F Street, in the heart of our nation's capital, Washington, D.C. Bob, the place to be. Absolutely. We'll see you in two weeks, folks. Have a great August. Bye-bye. <laughs>